0: Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast, research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us.
1: So I'm Amber. Um, I'm with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. And tonight, our special guest is Grant Lastuka, and I'm super excited to have him. We've worked together a fair bit in the past. Um, And then we're also on the board for Alberta Forage Industry Network, which is uh, supporting the voices of forages throughout Alberta. With that, one of the projects that AFIN has been working on is Farming the Web. So Farming the Web is a Kijiji for Farmers it is a great place to buy and sell um, any of your farm goods. There's a place for services listed. So, and if you look really closely, you might see Steve's bail truck that he's selling on there. So you can give him a hard time about that too. So yeah, outside of that, I think that is all for me. And if Steve, do you have anything to add?
0: Well, I don't have anything to add after that. You did it all. Thank you. <laughs> I don't have to do an introduction now. Uh, no, I just was going to say that the, uh, um, we started this Wednesday night networking uh, last winter when, you know, all the conferences and and things were shut down. And the biggest part of that that I I missed is the networking, the the one on one and the you know talking around the the dinner table at the conference. So we decided to start up just a straight networking, um, no presentations, no slideshows, no nothing, just networking. With that being said, I'd like to introduce Grant Lustuca. Um Our special guest tonight. Uh, We needed to start this off with a bang. So who better than than the, the grazing guru? as I used to, when I first met him, that's what he was called, the, the grazing guru or the grass guru or something. Grant's been with uh, Alberta agriculture for over 30 years. And now he's working with uh, groups like Erica, um, Afin, he's on the board of Afin, also working with Union Forage right now, I think. And uh, yeah, he's been a huge mentor of mine over the, the the last, what, 20 years that I've been in this area. I'm really grateful for all the knowledge and information that Grant's been been able to give to us. So um, our topic for tonight is, is Winter feeding systems, We've, we needed to pick something to start with, so that's what we're going to go. I know uh, Grant's lots of experience with that, and uh, we would like to uh, start with that. But if we go on a tangent, that's perfectly all right. We don't have to go in the same direction all night. So by all means, uh, I'm an introduction for myself, uh, Steve Kenyon. I'm with uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. And uh, yeah, we just decided we wanted to do this. And we partnered with the Gateway Research Organization to get this started last year. And it was such such a success that we're excited to be here again this year and and uh, doing it again. So I'm going to turn it over to Grant. Introduce yourself a little bit, a little better than I did. And then maybe introduce the topic and your, your comments on the uh, winter feeding systems.
2: Thank you so much, uh, both uh, Steve and Amber. Certainly the... the- Pembina Forage Association was the mentor that got me started in grazing, and that is the precursor to the Gateway Research Organization to talk about a small world. And I think that's what so much of us find in the grazing fraternity, the opportunity to have the networking, the peers that we can all ask questions of and learn from, and in so many ways, share the mistakes so others don't make them. Um, when I look at the winter feeding side or feeding systems, every year is different. And I've had a couple of mentors to me make a comment and it was within two weeks of his each one. And this was a couple of years ago. They said 38 years of grazing and every year is different. And then another fellow who was a mentor uh, Jerry Tell you made the comment, it's a grazing mentality. And that 365-day grazing mentality is one that doesn't mean any system is a system you should use. It is a system to consider. And there's many opportunities. And that's when Steve and I did quite a bit of work together back in the late nineties and such was looking at varying feeding systems and extending the grazing season. The reality behind a lot of that is when I originally started looking at it, I myself was doing it and learning as I went. My 30 some years with Alberta agriculture uh, just opened the door to meet some wonderful people and the Forage and Applied Research Associations networking opportunities to really develop that and build something that I know many of you are working with hopefully through some of these living labs and other opportunities happening across Canada and other places to get local and regional research and such done. Every year is different. One of the things we have to say is that the feeding side of an operation, but also the feeding system side of the operation. How you go about that system of feeding, those are the two mainstays in ruminant production costs. And if it be winter and summer, or the infrastructure that you use to do so, it all sets you up for trying to put a square peg in a round hole, or in fact, hopefully a profitable operation. Looking at it now, what we're excited about with so much of this is the work that was done on grazing systems and winter feeding systems have been putting the manure and urine back on landscapes that they came from more. And when we look at today's high cost of fertility, the opportunity to rejuvenate, we know that when we take nutrients in and put them back in places where they grow forage as soon as possible, all of that bodes well for the economic and for the soil health pictures coming together. And so that is something to all of it that I think is the bottom line. One of the others is management of labor and management of the side of your business that allows for flexibility. So I don't know how many people want to ask questions, I Certainly, try to address different ones, uh, or I could speak to a little more. I know that the heat, I know the shortage of feed in many cases this year have made plants go dormant. I myself um, was just weeding calves yesterday We're putting nose flaps in the calves for a one week soft wean prior to fence line weaning. And I did notice that my first calvers, the body condition on them had faltered. And to me, that was because of the heat. And I expect in drought, I'm going to have less uh, fiber. When I get heat, I have fiber, more fiber. And protein also goes down. So I think that's what I'm seeing a bit in those first calvers is the shortfall of protein and the higher fiber that comes with heat and drought combined, where I often I have some pretty high quality feed in a drought. This year, I don't.
0: I agree with that, uh, Grant. Um, I'm, my pigs didn't gain as well this year. We lost our uh, all of our clovers out of the pasture. And we just don't have the weight gains because I don't think they had the protein. Um, they normally want the dandelions and the clovers, and and this year all it was was grass, and the ground was so hard they couldn't even root to try and get the roots of the grass. So yeah, our gains are lower all around this year. That heat really, really hit everything. I guess to to add to Grant's, yeah, uh, winter feeding systems to me. Uh, it starts out with good summer management because we, you know, try and get as late as possible. There's lots of different tools we can use to to extend that grazing season. A disposable herd is something I've used for a long time. I mean, my disposable herds went out a long time ago um, and my breeding herds, uh, one breeding herd is still grazing now. Because of that, uh, that's a tool that I can use. So that extends my grazing, um, or extends my grazing to into that winter feeding system. Lots of different ways of feeding: uh, swath grazing, bale grazing. uh, We've done silage grazing. Uh, The important part to me is there's a differentiate in that when those winter systems between the feed cost. And the labor and equipment cost, or you could call it yardage. Now, those are two things that a lot of people, you know, don't always account for uh, the labor and equipment cost. So that's something I'm pretty pretty strong on. Now I don't do it perfect. I I I, I do a kind of a from the hip uh, yardage charge just to make it simple and easy for people, but it's it's close, and you know, at least you're. A, planning somewhat for for that uh, cost but there's a lot of folks out there that don't even you know don't even consider the labor and equipment costs in in feeding so that's a a big concern for me when i'm talking
1: i have a question for both you guys actually what do you think would be The main difference. So as custom grazers, we kind of have the choice, you know, this year, hay was ridiculously expensive, feeds harder to find. So we have the choice to not winter cows. Grant, you have a consistent herd. So what would you say are the differences in how you manage your your winter systems because of that?
2: I guess uh, many years ago, I read Stan Parsons' book, Uh, If You Want to Be a Cowboy, Get a Job. And it had Whitby working in the business, Watby working on the business, and Waitby worrying about the business. And one of the comments he'd made, if you're worrying about the business, do something or don't. If you don't, then don't worry. So I use that as a gut check. And with our systems, I'm looking at a perennial forage base. And as Jerry Tell you's comment of a 365 day grazing mentality, I know that should be my cheapest alternative. So I'm trying to build around that, even with a fixed herd. And that fixed herd just looks different at times based on am I weaning calves now, which I am, or am I weaning calves in March? It's uh, I left more stockpiled forage because I'm worried about next spring and everything. So we're coming off of grass faster and leaving more for next year to be part of that. When I was worried in April, I went out and bought a bunch of bales. In fact, all the winter feed supply. In fact, I had an opportunity to even help out a friend. It's a 365-day mentality approach. And uh, as soon as a cow lost a calf, I sold her. I sold the spare bulls. It's the cows with calves side that I didn't choose to sell. But in 2003, I did. And that was because of economics. I could, didn't see myself penciling a profit to keep them, to winter them. So it's again... It's as flexible or as permanent as you want to make it with a herd. And uh, certainly when you're running yearlings, when you've got custom cattle, then you hope you can manage easier with some of those stick handling, as our friend Doug Ray always likes to say, stick handling through it. And that is the case that I was stick handling this spring.
0: Yeah, we've done a lot of stick handling in the, the last couple of years. <laughs> we've had two years of extreme wet and then a year of extreme dry. We, we're, 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 we've are we're we done a fair bit of that. So.
1: so we have a question, and I didn't get a chance to to let you know, Michael, that you can unmute your mic and turn your video on. So if you want to go ahead with that, feel free to. Yeah,
3: I just kind of know, because
2: oh, you talk about when things are happening. Because Like with me, I'm always calving. Now we calve the middle of May, to middle of June this year. Like you said, with things, we're just a small operator because we only have between eight to 12 cows calving a year anyway. But uh, we start we start bale grazing actually in July.
0: But anyway, when do you calve, Grant?
2: We start calving the last week in May. And we've calved in the end of April Uh, up until BSE and the big snowstorm that hit us that spring. We realized that the teachings Dick Divin had for us, we could do more with calving later. It does cash flow you and other things into doing things differently. Originally, we calved in February. So we've been well said, Michael, because when you calve, determines how you can manage because that is the decision you make that ties you into some different decisions that others can have and you might not have because of it.
3: Yeah, because with us, we used to calve earlier too, and
2: then we didn't have – I don't know what your extremes are for temperature or weather, but we went to the middle of May because we had all of a sudden those cold snaps, and I wasn't fast enough to get out there with the calves because we just laid them out in the pasture because – Normally, it's nice
3: by the middle of April, but sometimes, but okay, thanks.
2: Yes, there is no right time or wrong time. There are thoughts of why. And I know I had a friend that unfortunately from Manitoba, I can't even think of his name right now, but he was a nickel, Glenn Nickel. When you've got really wet springs, you don't have high land. All of a sudden, you might find yourself having to calve earlier, so that everything's not in the mud. So every when you calve, it's for a different reason for many people, different purposes. Um, certainly, it's a lot easier to calve more cows with less mistakes when they're calving later. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Scott. You said you might be ready to go.
2: Yep. Yeah, I'm ready. My question is on, um, I've been hearing it called zombie canola where it looks dead and then it comes back to life and then it's flowered. (laughs) Um, Or even, it could even, like maybe if you have any particular experience with either testing that or people trying to graze it. And then if you have any other comments on other stuff that people have tried to graze, whether nitrates have been a problem after rain has kind of reinvigorated things. Um, I can take a try at that. I'm, I'm not a person that worries very much about nitrates, and that kind of sounds maybe funny. You never say never. The nitrogen that's in the soil and the regrowth that occurs, it's sink and source. So something growing rapidly, something with a high fertility present to draw on, I worry more about swath grazing ground, manure, urine, Fields and such. The regrowth of canola is a poor man's alfalfa. It's a high quality feed. And uh, I caution people to make sure that if they are grazing it, and I would too, Scott, I like it. I have grazed it, I have fed it, is just kind of keep track of the sulfur in your water and the sulfur in the canola, because both of those could in fact be something that brings on polio. But as nitrates go, cows adjust. Fatter cows tolerate more nitrates than skinnier cows. The nitrates are highest in the lowest parts of the plants. Um, The nitrates are, in fact, uh, if a plant keeps growing, uh, nitrogen is used in growth. When plants stop growth in mid-stride, their fertility of nitrate coming in is locked in more. Uh, but it is still solution by dilution. And I still look at any feedstuff as a feedstuff to look at. I know we've got people out there grazing canola regrowth, and they should be. It is a valuable feedstuff. Why do we have all those cocktail covers of brassicas out there in the industry? Canola is just another one of those brassicas that is a a high-quality one As long as the bottom leaves are still maintaining color and not falling off, uh, really losing color, we still have an alfalfa stand quality essentially in a canola. But the high sulfur after about three weeks of grazing, particularly if you've got high sulfur in the water, could be something to keep an eye out on. At the same time, they could be grazing headlands. They could be grazing a bit of a mixed ration. Maybe you pull them off and put them back on. It's a good feed.
1: You're hilarious, Grant. Because I just did a video with Barry Uremcio on nutrition in canola regrowth. I'll post a link for it right away. But you, you guys were right on the same page there, so that's fantastic. It's it's nice when our experts agree.
2: Just with oh. the with the canola in front of you, or any of those stuffs. These are the feed stuffs that I hope we can work with in the grains industry. Because there were many silage crops that regrew this year after silages came off. There were with those late fall rains, we had valuable, invaluable forage growth present. And I know one of the people I'd talked to, he'd made arrangements with people with cattle that didn't know how to handle electric fencing. And he was paying them a buck ten a day to graze their regrowth grounds. And he would put up the fence for them. Put his cows there, truck the water, move them on, and for a buck 10 a day, he said a cow calf pair is pretty affordable versus winter feeding. And so he was using a variety of feedstuffs on a multitude of people's land that even had animals. So whether it was a feedlot operator, a cow calf operator that didn't have fences, he had water, he had skills with electric fences. So we was have cows, will travel. And I know Steve's done a bunch of this over the years.
0: Yeah, I've quite a few times I've grazed some pretty high canola ground. I mean, it's all volunteer, but that's the majority of what showed up. And, and I like your comment. You said when you put the canola in front of the cow, um, I'd like to add to that. I'd like to not stand behind the cow when there's canola in front of her. Because <laughs> they can get pretty runny right? It's pretty high protein stuff. So it's nice to balance it off with something else, right? Give them a little bit of something to, mm. to, to be cautious with. So yeah, we've grazed it quite a few times, some pretty high uh, canola regrowth stubble. Some, some of it's been midsummer when we've got to, we take over some grain land and that volunteer comes up like crazy. Uh, we've done it even early in the spring. Um, we've done a broadcast and trample on a canola stubble field. And basically we threw a bunch of seed out first and then they went out and grazed all the volunteer canola, really, really young and really lush. So, yeah, they get pretty runny. It's a high quality feed, but uh, I wouldn't want to do it for a long period of time because I don't. I like a, a, you know, a mixed ration in, in any diet. You know, a monoculture of anything can have imbalances. So I wouldn't want to do it for an extended period of time, straight canola. But uh, yeah, it, you can get away with it on a short period of time for sure.
1: Does that answer your question, Scott?
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah,
1: that was good. Dustin, we have you up
4: next.
5: Hey, everybody. Um, my question is on bale grazing. So this year, especially having to start feed earlier than usual, and then also on the backside with uh, bale grazing into the spring, is there anything that you guys do changing tactics to account for that? Or is it business as usual?
2: It's never business as usual if you're a grazer from a mentality and you're monitoring and with monitoring, you're trying to assess the situations and every over all the years of doing it. And Steve's done it a long time, too. We've done it for since 1995. Every year is a bit different. And we're starting bale grazing earlier this year. And part of it is because we wanted to stockpile and leave more forage because of fear of drought going into next year. And I, I rather take care of stands that went dormant pretty soon. And I would like them to be catching snow, holding it for, for spring Um, with bale grazing when the weather's more, uh, if it's wet ground, wet weather, warm weather, there's more fouling potential with bale grazing. The exciting thing about some of that is we know that depending on the quality of feed and how much labor you want to put into it, because as Steve said, labor's a cost. But I do know a couple people that like to train border collies, and I won't, Poo poo any of the other breeds of dogs, but you can, in fact, pull and put cows three to five hours on good quality feed and pull them off and meet ration requirements. There is some work, I believe, that I can't even think of where I read it, but it might have been even out of Saskatchewan. Maybe Bart Lardner had. But um, the idea that you got um, every year is different with bale grazing. We do put our bales in different fields. And we were chatting right when we started tonight. We have our poorest quality feed for our old cows in one field, the better quality feed in another. We have our poor quality feed for what we call our skinny cows. And there are young cows and others and our better quality feed in another field. And with that, it allows us the most flexibility to do things. If the weather changes on us, we can hold them on better quality or poorer quality longer. If um, we're concerned about waste for some reason, we can play games with the cows. Um, So it gives us more options. The weather gets really cold. The weather gets really warm. And because we set up things in the fall, we do use cow bites. We do weigh bales. So we know what we've got. We try our best to estimate cow weights more accurately with all of that coming together. I core my own bales cause I want, I want to know the quality of them and get them analyzed. So less surprises as a manager would go. Steve's got lots of experience here. I know.
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. Changing bale grazing, depending on the snow cover and the, the, if the ground's frozen or not, that was the question, correct? them. Going back to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure, our environment that we're in here, we're pretty lucky because bail grazing works really good. Because most of the time, we've got frozen ground and snow. Normally, maybe we have a you know two and a two and a half week uh, spring breakup that you have to be careful of, uh, and it's not that hard to get through that. It's you know a short period of time. Normally, what I would do in that time is uh, you know save an area on the south side of the hill or on the top of the hill right as that snow is melting in the spring your hills always melt off first and the south side will melt off first so we're not on that during when those are melting and then it'll kind of dry up when everything else is starting to dry so that's where i have you know time those bales on that hill have a certain paddock or another spot available that I could be, when everything else is wet, we can be up on that dry hill or vice versa, right? When that hill's wet, you're still on the frozen ground on the, on the north slope. So, you know, two and a half weeks is not that hard to, to, to plan around for that. That being said, like Grant, Grant just said, every year is different. I think it was about five years ago we were doing a bale grazing and I had that planned. I had the hills and everything kind of, you know, this paddock is going to be for that, that time of the year. And uh, we had two and a half months of spring breakup. Yeah, we punched out some paddocks and we yeah. ran, ran out of dry spots and and uh, we did some damage to probably two or three little paddocks. And I, once things start getting to, so that it is too wet, well, then I have a sacrifice piece, right? We just move in there and we beat the heck out of it. Um, yeah. It's better than beating up all of it. You can easily start feeding on the far side, right? I have a bale truck so we can spread them out a little bit during that period. But then now you got you know, muddy ruts and stuff. So I'm almost I'd almost rather just leave them on the bale grazing and, and let them have some hoof imprints instead of all these ruts that the, the vehicles make. So in a wetter environment, yeah, I would I'd be changing things. I'd have a sacrifice paddock or I'd have a, a different spot when the ground gets soft, uh, pull them off, get them, get them out somewhere else. We're kind of lucky that way that we have such a long cold winter <laughs> that bale grazing works very well for us. So I guess that's our advantage here. But um yeah.
1: Uh, next up, we have Linda. Oh, I see you're, you're sharing something. We can see that maybe if you can Linda, if you can just describe it for us, um, just yep. for the podcast so that we can understand the podcast and see what's happening.
6: Yeah. So Shaylee Stewart did a presentation for the Rancher Stewardship Alliance down here in Montana last week. And um, as I wrote in the in the um, chat box, we've had less than four inches of precip in the last 12 months. You know, we usually don't get a lot, but uh, we usually get 11. But we've had four, and so all of us are destocking. And Shaylee came in and talked about restocking after a drought, and what she shared was a North Dakota State University study that Harlan Hughes did that showed it was based on the 2012 drought and it showed it took more than 10 years to recover when the producer had a 250 head cow herd called 50 mature cows and kept no replacement heifers and um that's i don't know can you actually see this thing does it help or do i need to try to tell what these numbers are can you see it I mean, really, all you need to do is see the graph. Yeah, we can see it. I mean, it's grim. It's it's really grim. And it was really surprising to us. You know, all of us are destocking um, instead of paying $250 to $300 a ton for decent A. She made a pretty compelling case where you might think about um, putting wheels underneath the cows and sending them somewhere, think about bringing them back, Um, just realizing that the cost of gain Your input costs over this winter are not the only part of what she told us to think about. She told us to think about future year's income. And I just wondered, Grant, what you thought about that, because I can see how you integrate all these other things that people are thinking about. And um, this was a new way to think about it for me.
2: We value grass. We know we value soil. And we look at those as uh, protection items that we can ill afford to move backwards with in the industry. I won't sacrifice them. Uh, if I have to sacrifice a small paddock or something like that, but I, you've got that uh, mind mentality that God takes care of those that take care of his his creations to graze your way in as bud williams used to say why do ranchers hate grass we can't afford to hate grass we've got to protect it and overgrazing is taking us down a a rabbit hole that we can't afford in this industry to come back out of afterwards the land that's the most dry the land that's the most fragile, brittle, as Holistic uh, a Ranching for Profit would say, is the land that we have to be the most careful with how we manage because it takes the longest time to recover from these things or not at all. So our thought to all of it is that we won't Damage our stands. If we do, it's not with overgrazing. It might be with a severe grazing incident and then getting out of there. But it is not from rebiting plants before they've recovered adequately. Mm-hmm. So that to us is if I got to make a mistake, it'll be with the severe grazing, but I won't come back. Until it's recovered. And if it hasn't recovered next year, they're not coming back next year. And that's what you see in Australia and other places where they simply destock. You're right, because that resource is something that you can't get your way back out of. It just takes too long and it'll break you. Um, so, no, I, it's something that is pretty sacred.
6: Mm-hmm. yeah and i I appreciate that I think the point Shaley was trying to make was was not to push your land any harder than you ought to she she wasn't making that point. she was just making the point of three hundred dollar a ton hay is not gonna pencil very well if what you're looking at is your cost of gain your your cost of feeding those but if what you feed if you what you um include in that is your future years um income that you could have, then it might make it so you'd pay more for the hay or pay more a lot, you know, some of the people here are are sending cattle to Nebraska and Kansas, young cows to Nebraska and Kansas. And if the drought lets up, they'll come back. If it doesn't, they won't. Um, but figuring that those trucking costs might be covered. And it was just a new way to think for me.
2: Yeah, Linda, it was funny because Llewellyn Mansky from North Dakota spoke and he was somebody didn't understand what he meant. And his point was that three hundred dollar a tonne hay was a better investment than degrading the landscape in a way that now it had to come back from. It doesn't mean you go out and spend three hundred dollars, but it's exactly what Harlan was sharing. The damage is so profound at times that it will be extremely costly in the long term. Therefore, you should consider it in light of the fact that, yeah, three hundred dollars ton hay or the trucking cost to get cows out of here is the best investment other than selling them outright at the start. And doing so quickly. Um, And I know we had people like Steve made a comment earlier. Some of our mentors that Steve and I know have er sold yearlings in June. Sold cow-calf pairs in early July or June. uh, Because they saw that they were cows that they didn't think would be part of their future. And so, yes, you just pick those planned culls. And Steve's got an article in the Cattleman magazine up here this year talking about drought and planning. Um, yes, the fact is we've all got plans and those plans have to be in light of the magnitude of the damage economically or to our resource that occur. We can't afford that. That's the the things that are working for us that we can't dig our way back from.
0: I can add to that a little bit, Linda. I I would look at that as a couple of, you know, what what Grant was just talking about. I'd look at them as a couple of different profit centers, right? We've got a a grazing profit center where we're managing the the land and the grass. And then we have a cow-calf profit center, which we want to protect both of them. We want to make sure that, you know, try and keep them both profitable. Um, And in that decision, okay, now I want to protect my grazing. So we're going to get those animals off. Now, where do we put them? Is it more economical for me to send them somewhere else to feed them? Is it, you know, for that cow calf profit center, or is it more economical for me to buy some expensive hay, or is it more economical for me to cull some and get rid of them? And I understand the point of, of what that, that uh, I'd like to see it, but I haven't yet. But the, the the point of it is, um, if you sell off part of the factory, right, you're not going to make as, you, you don't have as much income next year. Right. So, when you sell off part of that factory what do you do with the money yeah right can you invest it in something else or do you just you know go buy another pickup truck with that <laughs> right yeah. like can you take that money you you had to call some cows because feed was too expensive and you didn't want to lose money on that now you sold some cows did you lose money on the buying and selling of your cow herd did you buy them cheap and did you sell them expensive or was it the other way around? Did you buy them expensive 10 years ago and now you sold them at cull prices? Mm
4: -hmm. Well,
0: if you sold them in, you know, uh, August when we knew there was a drought, well, prices were still good, right? You might've actually made a profit on, on your cow herd. If you wait till now you bring them in now and you sell them Well, cow prices are in the, in the toilet. So um if we're going to you know play buy and sell with the with the herd itself not the calves that you're selling that's kind of your cash flow going through it it's a timing thing right this year i was surprised that the cow prices stayed strong so long right so if we if we you, you bit the bullet and said yeah i'm going to sell 50 cows if you sold them earlier you might have done all right on them and now you could take that money and invest it in another profit center or another something that could you know, you know, buy sheep or buy goats or buy chickens or invest in Tim Hortons. I don't, I don't know, but can you, can you make those changes without selling off part of the factory, right? Can yep. you, can you buy another part of the factory and sell widgets now with that money? So I look at it as separate entities and, and you've got to make those decisions from your economics depending on the profit center, depending on the situation. So I don't know if that answered anything, but
6: it does. I don't want to short, short um, Shaley and what she was in her message. She said that it's particularly important at this point in the cattle cycle, because her prediction is the cattle cycle is going to go next year, way high. And so it really will be a case of selling low and buying high. And that's why $300 a ton hay might be significantly a good investment right now.
0: Yeah, I just
6: hadn't really thought about that.
0: Commodity prices all around are pretty strong right now. And maybe this is just a dip, but I mean, grain prices are high. Cattle prices have been high. The futures have been solid on, on yearlings, you know, Right up and in, into the fall, even because of the drought. I just think that there's a lot of demand for the commodities right now. And that might continue into next year. And you're she could be a hundred percent right. But uh, yeah. you know, hindsight's 2020, we'll see, I guess.
6: Yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate yep. it.
4: Next up we have Tom Richards.
0: Yeah, we're not getting you. I can read it out. Grant, why don't you take this? Uh what are you guys, what are your guys' thoughts on multi-species cover crop grazing?
2: Ah, uh, multi-species cover crop grazing. I, I guess my comment is I'm presuming we're talking plant species or are we talking animal multi-species? Do we know? I'm not looking at the chat.
0: Plants. I think he said plants.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, Work that uh, Peace Country Beef and Forage Association, Akeem uh, cania had done without fertilizer, showed that getting about three families and of together of different species ended up being the most profitable alternative. So I guess what we're looking for here is, is all that work that at the start that uh, uh, Amber and Steve were talking about digging deep, looking for roots. We're looking at the different opportunities of plant roots to explore below the soil and work with soil organisms. We're looking for the different plant species above the ground to take advantage of drought or moisture resilience to it too. So it's more than just saying it's oats or barley two cool season grasses, if you want to call it, or cool season cereals. But trying to get the diversity of three different species attributes coming together is probably the biggest difference makers in the US US or in southern warmer climates, it's having a C4. So looking at a cool season grass, a legume, a C4, in a perennial system, in an annual system, it could well be looking at a legume, a cool season grass as a cover crops goal. And uh, so, uh, and then a, a brassica potentially to go with the cool season grass because now you've got the diversity those three bring to the picture to synergize and take advantage. And for the brassica to try to release a little phosphorus into the system from its bacterial favoritism and for the cool season legume and grass to work with the mycorrhizal fungi and get the some of the paved highways into the soil that some of these legumes can do for water infiltration also with the fact that we've got that ability for those species to be able to be drought avoiders in some cases where others aren't. So some of the legumes are pretty good drought avoiders and you'll find that they will survive the first part of a drought before it affects them so much so. And as Mike, Dr. Mike Schoenberg would say, some of these are uh, hydraulic uh, lifters maybe is the word to use where they'll lift water from depths during the heat of the day and release some back at night into that uh sphere for the benefit of grasses. So those are some of the principles behind the cover crop mentality um, that I'm still learning about. And Steve, you've done a lot here, I know.
0: Yeah. I love cover crop grazing. Are you referring to cover crops on grain land and then it's going to remain grain land? You can just nod if you want. I'm going to go with that. Cover crops are great. And Grant's description was 100%. Um, The polyculture of plants gets you a polyculture root systems, which gets you a polyculture of soil organisms. Right. And that's where the magic happens is getting all those soil organisms in there. So I like to see as many different types of root systems as I can. Um, so as Grant said, some, you know, tap roots, creeping grasses, you know, uh, legumes and, and bunch grasses, uh, C4 versus C3 annual versus perennial, right. Can I get a, a combination of different types of root systems in there? That being said, there's a risk to this as well. Um, because I've worked with some grain farmers in the past and I've taken over some grain land, you've got to be careful because this soil is not, it's very stable, right? It, it's grain land. It's, it's, you know, it's not as strong. If you get a really wet year, you can punch it out and do a lot of damage, right? Like give me four or five years of doing this and then it won't punch out. it's just near so bad because I'm going to heal the land. But to begin with this, this grain land that I'm going on to, it's very fragile if it gets too wet. So luckily for me, in most cases that I've taken over grain land, it's a small piece of grain land touching one of my grazing cells, So I can, I've got some flexibility, right? I've got, for example, one down down that I'm thinking about right now, we took over 60 acres of grain land, touching a pasture of mine that has 1100 acres. So pretty flexible on when I hit that piece, right? If I'm coming around to it and it's pouring rain and it's super wet, well, I don't have to be on it, right? I'll go graze some other paddocks and come back to it. Whereas another piece that I took over, we took over a 100-acre piece of pasture, all grain land, seeded it down, and that was three years ago, and it was the wettest year I'd ever seen. Um, We were grazing through 11 inches of uh, water, right? Like, I know that because I I had 12-inch rubber boots. My, My socks did get wet a little bit, but it was just, there was nowhere to go, right? I ran out of high ground, and there's nothing left to graze, and there's nowhere to put the cattle. So be very careful with that, depending on your environment. I know a fella uh, down in Colorado. They're they're under irrigation. Well, he grazes cover crops all day long. I got like every some every year, but he can control his rain, right? He's under irrigation. He knows when it's going to go there. If you're in a wetter environment, trying to you know turn those cows out onto that land might be a risk. That being said, if that's your case, well maybe you you still grow that multi-species cover crop, swath it, and wait till the ground's frozen and go out and graze it right yeah. and there's less risk of of that happening you still get the 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 that all that growth all that benefit to the soil with all those root systems and all the you know soil biology and then you you have less risk of damaging i know now i know in december we can get a warm spell and all of a sudden they're punching it out again but um there's less risk if you can wait until winter to do that so you still get the nutrient recycling you still get a lot of those benefits but uh just save it for the winter so my two cents
2: We really are looking at getting some of those. uh, If we're looking at regenerative agriculture, we're looking at integration of perennials. We're looking at integration of livestock on landscapes for the sake of true soil health. And that simply means that we have to be careful that the relationships we build with those grain farmers like Steve's working hard on are really ones that are win-wins Because, unfortunately, we're hearing way too many thoughts that why would I want those animals on the land because they don't see the benefit. And yet we know many of our mentor peers that can show you many benefits of that thinking holistically, thinking regenerative, and as Shorty was commenting, collaborative management systems too.
1: Great stuff, guys. Uh, next up, we have Dustin. Are you ready to go?
5: That, yeah. Uh, my question is on extending your pasture into the fall and winter grazing by grazing into the snow. I'm in the same kind of weather area as you are, Steve. What's the optimal rest period prior to don't and, and this is on native pasture, to ensure the recovery of that and then also the optimal feed value and volume for the cattle? Like how long do I want to be off of that before things start to die off with the first frost and so on and so forth.
0: Okay, so just let me. So we when we're going to graze it in midsummer, say, and then the killing frost hits it, and then we're grazing it in the winter. Yeah. Okay. To me, I'm pretty flexible on that. I don't. You know, it's the graze period, rest period. We don't want to be having that killing frost hit it. Uh, i mean it happens on some paddocks every year but if you're going to try and save something what i'm more concerned about is do i have enough volume out there to get through the snow or to get um, to make it worthwhile being out there most years if it's only a couple inches tall and you know it's i i leave it right that's just my ground cover i'm not going to come back to that but depending on the year like this year i don't have very much that's that's tall enough Um, i mean we're we're on a drought year, we graze it a lot harder and we don't have near as much residue. But because I've left residue for the last seven years, right, we can get away with that one year and it doesn't hurt you too bad. Now, uh, I don't usually, you know, think too much about the timing on that stuff. It just is it is it ready, right? Some years it'll be ready sooner, right? We'll get faster growth because you had a better year or you've got slower growth because it's been dry. Optimal rest period it depends on your environment, right? If, if I, I don't like giving numbers on rest periods, cause I change mine every year. Uh, I, I think change is a tool for us. Um, one year I'll be aiming for a, you know, a 35, I'll be aggressive with a, a group of yearlings and I'll aim for a 35 day rest period on the first rotation. And maybe, you know, maybe extend that to 60 days on the second, uh, grazing. Uh, and then another year I'll bring in cows or bred heifers and I'll start with a, you know, 70 day rest period. Um, and then, you know, we might only get two rotations or maybe even one and a half rotations on a, on a piece of land. So it all depends on the piece of land, right? It's it's kind of an art. Um, it's not so much, uh, not not entirely a science or it's definitely not a recipe anyway. So I don't know if that helped you at all, but.
5: Yeah, no, it definitely does. I guess the other part of that too is like I have some, or I have a pasture that we typically use in the spring kick them out to the rest of the pastures and then most years they won't see it again until the fall like October, November and so it's got lots of growth in it. There's lots of forage in there but they don't want it. They don't like it and they're trying to bust down fences unless I put out hay bales. So I look at that as though that's over mature and they're not really interested in it and obviously I need to go back to that before that occurs, let them graze it down and then try and get some growth on it again. But yeah, kind of all tying together.
0: Okay, I'm gonna let you hit that in a second Grant. Just let me t- finish that off. It's too mature, right? So they are they don't like it because it got too mature, but you don't have to be perfect every year on every paddock, right? Don't don't get that in your head that, oh, we, we, did, we, we didn't quite mess, you know, we didn't quite do that right. Nature never did everything perfect either it's okay that that's mature. If you have to supplement a little bit to get that quality up, that's fine, right? Yeah, the cows don't like it. Well, maybe you need a little better electric fencer around them, whatever. But the fact that something got too mature on you, it's part of your system, right? If that's convenient for you that you grazed that in the spring, you left it all summer and now it's convenient that you know we're bringing them back in the fall because that's just know the way the pastures worked um just use it i mean it it probably went to seed you know too and then you've added seed to your seed bank so i don't get stressed over much out there on the on the grazing because next year i'm going to do it different and and we'll make up for any little you know errors that we had so but yeah grant go ahead you got add to that
2: well said steve i think that in the end Equal and opposite measure is often a term that I'd use many, many years ago from a a place I picked up. Um, So if I feel I was too hard on something or I even talked to uh, a good friend like Jim Bauer and, you know, he he's got native pasture, but he's got three paddocks of native uh, that he draws on each year. It's a different one he starts on. We're trying to be, uh, I guess, working with the landscapes to make the resilience there so they can come back. And it's only when we repeatedly do the same thing that we actually get probably what we didn't even want. So the difference in what we do to it I know that even somebody like uh, Llewellyn Mansky in North Dakota. He's the fellow that came out with the idea that we wait till the three leaf, three and a half leaf stage of plant growth uh, to graze and then remove a portion of that to eustress plants so that they're challenged to not put up seed heads, but put up leaves, new tillers. So the difference, and, and yet we talk to a range person, they can't believe that you'd be grazing a native pasture early. Well, the fact is that it's how you go about it. And it's how, as Steve said, uh, every year is different. So uh, in fact, the work that was done at Dickinson, North Dakota with Dr. Llewellyn Mansky showed that there was more production. There was a higher milking ability in the cows later in the summer because the native range that they grazed that was a, a, a green natal grass, a, a plains reed grass, uh, blue grama, warm season, western wheatgrass was the other. So western wheat and green needle were the two predominant cool seasons, all responded well to being stressed and simply considering recovery adequately in the spring before they were grazed, harvesting a portion of the photosynthetic canopy, leaving a high amount of photosynthetic Canopy of pea present for roots to maintain and be intact and not be diminished. And the fact that the yield and quality went up over the season and the productivity over time. And when he put a shovel into that soil and you saw the glomulin clogged little soil particles stuck to all the fine root hairs, On that paddock, you thought to yourself, well, something's been done right. And in a stand like that, he had 100 kilograms per hectare of nitrogen per acre available. And you're thinking, wow, how do you get that? Well, 35 years of doing that. So that was a native stand, and that was the management system he was using
0: on it. Amber's sleeping.
4: I'm not. We have
1: another question coming in, but I wanted to know it's with Tom Richards again. So I want to know if he wants to try his mic out once more. Maybe not. Maybe I'll read it. (laughs) You're still mute. (laughs) Blink twice if I get it right. Okay. Okay. For depleted pastures, is bale grazing one of the better ways to replenish it? And if so, what spacing do you place bales? Not interested in breaking sod, can disc drill into it, but feel needs some soil armor and have started a serious gopher and badger control system?
2: (laughs) No, I I think that's uh, even, again, Peace Country Beef and Forage Association, one of the gateway research organizations, peers up north, the bale grazing was highly effective. What you're doing is you're giving it a shock. You're giving it a lot of nutrients. And with that, an opportunity for giving it a window of time for the recovery that can come from it. Um, And at the same time, realizing that a lot of the forage species you now have there are there. And so, if you've done a, a, a if you've grazed a pasture, and that's one of the things people ask us about with uh, rejuvenation, what species do you have there? And there are times where somebody will be very unhappy with the species, and then the rejuvenation side is a challenge because if we just leave it like that, or if we try to feed it like that. It might not change as much as you think. You might have more productive Kentucky bluegrass and quackgrass. And maybe that's good and they're happy with it. But the bale grazing adds a lot of phosphorus, potassium, sulfur. And you'll often uh, see uh, situations where there's a whole bunch. And today, a fellow was telling me after his bale grazing, he said, I never planted it, but all that red clover that came. Holy smokes. So the fertility addressing the need for the red clover was present. and it came. The seed bank. And that's something many, many years ago, Bert Smith, who was walking my land, said to me, what's in your seed bank? And I didn't have an, an answer. And I realized that was one of my weak links, is I didn't have a good seed bank of legume species and other things so now we try to manage stands for more seed set at times be it orchard grass or the smooth brome or the legumes so we've got a seed bank present that when we do bale graze it at times I found that all of a sudden here comes the orchard grass here comes the legumes that were there before and um, so it's a management system of thoughtfulness and uh, putting some of those key components together to bring them forward. But it's also, and I don't know how many read Steve's Cattleman article about, uh, you know, drought and drought proofing in years. That's the point. We're all trying to plan resilient systems that have got some aces in the hole for us over time. So that when something adverse happens, we can have an equal and opposite uh reaction maybe if we do the right things and all of a sudden now we come the legumes that we didn't even realize we had there yeah i think uh the bale grazing system has been highly effective to add soil Uh, the placement on them i know that ag canada had wanted us to keep them far apart Um, i don't mine are tight I cover landscape with them being tight together. I might not come back for seven, 10 years, maybe 15 years, but I have got them more uniform across our landscape simply because uh, in our situation, I find I want more uniformity and so I can manage that area. And right now when we soft weaned our calves with the nose pieces, We went on to a bale-grazed area that the calves were on last year and the year before and the year before in stages. So every year was a new bale grazing with second-cut hay, placed six paces center to center, so pretty tight, seven paces. And this is the fourth grazing this year with eight inches of moisture. In total now, I think we've got seven and a half inches maybe but when you've got a lot of fertility on it over time, and this is the third time the stands has been bale grazed since 1995. So our soil organic matter is higher too. So it is a very, and Steve's article talks about this, the broken water cycle. We're trying to address a number. I'm stealing all of Steve's thunder. It was, Steve's a mentor to me, so I I figure if he taught me, I could share it now because, you know, good ideas are always meant to be stolen. Right, Steve?
0: Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, I don't really have to answer anything now. No, um, you've mentioned it a few times, so I did put the link to that article in there. I actually didn't think it would be on the website yet, but it was, so the, the link is in there. Tom, to me, bale grazing it has been the only magic bullet I've ever found, right? Everybody's looking for a magic bullet to, you know, instantly fix something. And to me, bale grazing is pretty well the only one I've ever found, right? There's nothing else I've ever done that has really transformed a piece of land and and fixed it so well. And the big reason I think it fixes, I mean, Grant mentioned all the nutrients, right? The nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium that you bring in Uh, to me, again, it's the water right? The, the most important nutrient you could manage on your farm is the water. As an example, for every uh, 50 pounds of nitrogen you need to grow a crop, you need 10,000 pounds of water equivalent, right? By far, water is the most important nutrient. So that's what the bale grazing does, is it instantly leaves a ton of trash. And then the the you don't have the runoff, you don't have the evaporation and you have water right on a year like this. Absolutely. Fantastic. The very first time I ever did that was back in, well, I did a couple of years of bale grazing, but they were just very basic. So, you know, basically feeding out in a, in a spot, uh, in 201, I did a, you know, my first real bale grazing, I put a bunch of bales out and, and then we had the drought of 202 that summer at 202. The grasshoppers moved in. I'd barely had the land. I hadn't had it very long. The grasshoppers came in and, and wiped everything out, Yeah. except the bale grazing circles, right? I go out there and these bale grazing circles, was, it was green feed that I bale grazed. Um, there was barley standing two feet tall in these circles. And I'm going to actually go back to a comment that was right at the very beginning of our chat here. Um, The grasshoppers cleaned off everything else, but they left these circles alone. And so I started investigating about that. And I found out that there's actually a predator for the grasshopper. It's a fungus that will kill grasshoppers. The number one reason grasshoppers die is because of this fungus. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I can't. But uh, that's the that's it's their You know, when they get too many, you get too much moisture. And then this fungus comes in and kills all the grasshoppers. So they wouldn't go into that circle. It's instinctive to them. They don't want the moisture. So from that year, I figured out that I can fence out grasshoppers. I can literally keep them on the other side of the fence. All I have to do is have more water holding capacity in my land than my neighbor's land. And I've seen that in 2008 I went out and I watched and the neighbors had all sorts of grasshoppers and right across the fence on my land, because i have been building it for many, many years, very few grasshoppers. They didn't want to be in my land because it had a much higher water holding capacity. So water by far is the most important nutrient. Bale grazing is an instant boom. We've got water holding capacity. And it's a, it's a real, it's the only quick fix I've found. So downside, you can't cover very many acres in a year. Right in, in 20 years of doing this, right, I, I haven't even come close to covering all my land. Um, so, there's you've got to use some other tools to benefit the land that's a lot slower, right? Um, deferred grazing, leaving residue, you know, slowly building this back up, it takes time. Um, but yes, uh, bale graze as much as you, you know, much as you can. I used to bring in custom cattle to feed, feed just so I could bale graze, right? I didn't make any money feeding the cattle, I just was building up my land and and that was my main goal of that. So um yeah uh I'm a big fan of bale grazing. So we
4: have Karen Lindquist up next. Grant, how's it? How's it going? I got a question
2: for you. How are you doing, Karen?
4: I haven't seen you for ages. It's been a while.
2: (laughs) No kidding.
4: So my question, and I was because I got on here late, I got on like 45 minutes after it started. I didn't realize it because I was busy in the office and doing my stuff. So I was wondering if you had talked yet about grazing the slough areas. Um, reason I ask is because around here, Forestburg where I live right now, and uh Stettler and, and surrounding areas have been been out flags to have County Paint Earth and, and Stellar counties and all that. And I it would estimate that probably ninety-five percent of what maybe maybe ninety percent of the wetlands, so areas have been completely emptied out of uh, of water. So it's just been very ex- you anyway, know the driest I've ever seen since since I moved moved to this area. And I know there's people that are stressed for water, but also it's a prime opportunity for for grazing, so raising those slough areas, but I I think in the in the balancing act of of water, lack of water, but more forage available. Maybe you I'd like you to maybe talk a little bit about that, Grant.
2: Sure, Karen. Uh, uh, Carrick species, of course, sedges and other things. The slough areas are an area that, to me, is. More of our marginalized land we have that's in forages has got more of these areas all the time. And I was uh, I worked with a, a gentleman by the name of Neil Miller, who is a district agriculturist out of uh, ste- uh, out of uh, Lacombe. And he'd done quite a bit of work in the East Spotted Lake, Spotted Meadows areas and others. The Slu areas are huge resources. That have a lot of potential, and in the olden days, of course, they were hayed, and that was where the lower the nutrients that ran off the grain land often went into the lower areas into those lands. So you could remove the nutrients and feed your cows for the winter, and lo and behold, um, they kept being productive from year to year. The species we graze ourselves low. Uh, land because it is solenoidsic and uh, too wet Uh, and we find it's a great resource in that you look at it for most people they don't realize that they can run a hot wire here or a hot wire there and uh, it could be we kind of have a A series of horseshoes is what we call it. But we keep the animals down in the lower areas. When they're not so wet, they're not being pugged, but they're a different species than the more upland areas. And the quality of sedges and so many of these lower grass areas, the sedges are not a grass, but the, the mixed species that are present, when they're vegetative, they are good quality forage and animals do well on them it's when they get mature that people call them slough grass, which is a grass as well, but it's not a sedge. So the idea behind it is it's a resource to be used, and I'd rather see it grazed than I know people are out draining those areas and trying to farm through it to put grain crops in. So those lower areas, we did try to develop a little more solid water supply through a dugout in one of those areas so that we could have animals in there and um, but just use so they're not pugging landscapes Use so that they're setting them to be vegetative growth coming back so they can be grazed a second time in the season maybe Um, and some of those sedges are growing in April so we've got a real window of of forage growth that occurs that we don't get in dry, dry years, but here it is. And selfishly, I'm not a big fox, meadow foxtail or creeping foxtail fan. I'd much rather have the native sedges and other types of grasses that I could use and graze those areas. And I might have to, maybe it is in the fall where we're going to put uh, some means of drawing the animals into that area to consume it. but. Everything's a feed stuff, and uh, as long as we can maintain three inches of residual, we find that often those areas aren't contaminating areas further down with water mm-hmm. runoff and other things.
4: It's interesting. The other thing too is that there's most people don't realize that there's not just freshwater sloughs but there's also saltwater sloughs So that could also make it make an impact on. on uh, uh, you know, animals that intake salt and minerals because min- more minerals, more salt's available. And that also impacts the type of species that are there because there's different species that like the salt versus other species that prefer the freshwater sluice or wetlands or, or ponds or whatever you want to call them. So.
2: Well, one of the things I guess you run into, and I I know Karen, I think, is going to be talking about this with the plant ID and everything, but you run into things um, like, uh, um, oh, uh, water hemlock, seaside arrowgrass. So you have to watch a little bit. Um, And I, I don't want to say this the wrong way because I want everyone to be really careful but I do graze water hemlock. Uh, but you got to be careful with what you're doing. The fact that seaside arrow grass with persic acid, things like that, you can kill cattle by mismanaging yourself into those areas. But I also think that if you use good grazing management, and we had it identified at Olds College, so it's not water parsnip or something. But I'm not saying anybody should do this. Uh, It's just we had to and we have. So it's surprising what cows can do for you positively, but do be careful. Karen brought forward uh, uh, one thing. And of course, she'll be bringing more forwards with her plant ID session, maybe even so.
0: I can add to that a little bit, Karen. Um, All those low low lowland areas, the sloughs, um, to me, that's part of my drought plan. Right on the wet year, I don't need them right on a wet year. I got lots of grass everywhere else. They're underwater. I don't, you know, I leave that for the ducks and the dragonflies and all the critters to that's their environment. And then on that drought year, you can come along and you get a lot of extra land that way. I don't want to drain them out. Right. That's my drought plan. Um, Now you do have to be careful because the quality is lower. Right, and you throw a bunch of yearlings into a bunch of slough land for a month. Uh, they're not going to do so well. Years ago, I had a buddy uh, in one of our bad droughts. Uh, I think it was. I think it was a 202 drought. Could have been 208. He was uh, managing a, a grazing uh, pasture. Uh, he was bragging about how much grass he had ahead of him like oh my goodness all this lowland is is dried up and i got acres and like hundreds and hundreds of acres of extra grass that you know other years i don't have you know he was bragging about all the grass he had but in the end you know the end of that year um the animals didn't gain at all like some of them lost weight over the summer so it's a great backup Uh, you might need to supplement on it you know is it a low quality if i'm going For example, this year, uh, I had a a herd of steers, and my customers want to make sure they have gains. So when we come up to a quarter or a half a quarter or whatever it was that was a bunch of lowland, well, I threw a bunch of, you know, a few protein licks out with them. Um, Another piece, we had some lowland, and there was a piece of kind of grain land with it. Well, I threw them onto the lowland. I think we spent a week and a half out there. And during that week and a half, I strip grazed the grain land, the cover crop. Right. So every day they got a little bit of that high quality stuff. And then they went back and cleaned up some of the low. So instead of a protein lick, I used, you know, strip grazing to be able to get that extra protein into them to balance out that ration. So yeah, great resource to have all that lowland if it's dried up. Um, just you know, make sure you're managing the nutrition. And I actually use the the kind of the bypass protein idea. You could probably get away with that, you know, give them the high quality stuff on day one, they could eat mm-hmm. the Low quality stuff on day two. And then, you know, on day three, you give them protein again because they're going to utilize that bypass. You know, as the rumen bugs die, they still get protein out of it, right? So anyway, my two cents.
4: Cool. Thanks.
2: Yeah. And as Steve's brought forward, the the protein ability through saliva and liver detoxification, the animals recycle urea. And so they are cycling the crude protein in ammonia rhea form. And so three to five days is often, and that's kind of with our bale grazing, like when I said to you, we'll put them on straw for three, four or five days, then they go back on better quality. Hey, um, Steve's idea. It seems even if it is below requirements, it kind of works in summer on some of this grass Karen's talking about, as long as you're strip grazing them, allowing for them to get higher quality and then they go lower, higher and lower. Or actually pick a field for supplementation. Maybe it is a neighboring grain farmer that's got some land that he's concerned about. And you can work with him for soil health. It's an adjoining piece like Steve was talking about earlier. 60 acres by his 1100. Maybe it's something you can work with those people and improve their soil improve their landscape and develop a relationship of working together um, in a positive way for both of yourselves that gets that prude protein you need in the animals too. So yeah, everybody's got a different story to work with and depending on how high milking the cows are too, if they're older cows, younger cows, um, we comment that we kept the cows we could go to war with after BSE. And those cows can walk into a field that is some pretty much more poor quality forage. And they'll be as full as full can be. And I've got pictures of them. And you think, holy smokes. But they got big rumens, big rumen capacity. And I had a friend of mine's cows with ours. And I did not do him any justice. I'll tell you that. I could watch those cows struggle and ours were going right along. So yes, through all of this, the answer I think Shorty was talking about, it depends in it. It, Yeah, unfortunately, that's the story to a lot of this. We just want to understand why and figure out some of these angles and games that seem to work to, to use to our advantage at times when we need to in this business.
1: And next up, we have Ryan. This will be the last question of the night because I have a very important announcement to make. So please don't log off right away because this is a really exciting one. Um, but yeah, next up's Ryan.
3: Lucky me, I get the last question. I don't want to waste it then. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I just, I'm doing something a little different this year. So in the past, we've always kind of fed silage. And then that was kind of the main, uh, Portion of the feed ration, but this year, just due to the drought, we ended up taking off some pretty late green feed. I don't know if you want to really want to call it green feed. It's more of a uh, more of a grain and straw ration that was baled up. So it uh, turned out to actually be pretty good feed. So between that barley straw and slew hay, different types of hay, we got probably seven or eight different types of quality feed. Uh, any tips on how the best way to feed that would be uh, don't really want to do anything besides uh, feed every two or three days. I think that's probably the best way to do it. I don't really want to give them, you know, uh, too many days where they feed it at one time, but definitely don't want to feed them every day either. Just trying to limit that, but any tips would be appreciated.
2: we're going to be feeding hailed out barley, um, second cut hay and straw to um, uh, our two sets of cows and all we do is we do the cow bites ration and I forget how many pounds I didn't print it out but if they need 15 pounds of one uh, five pounds of another we just and because of the wonders of bales being side-by-side in a... When I said I've got the better quality feed, actually not quite true. We just use a lifter under the wire and send the cows into the second piece. So we're apportioning the ration. um, And we might do it every... uh, As long as we're matching crude protein needs of the animals on a three to five day basis, we're pretty comfortable, especially with older cows, very comfortable with older cows meeting crude protein needs on even up to a five day. The idea is knowing what your quality of feed is so that you can uh, kind of figure it out that way. Um, With the straw, make sure you know the NDF content because I thought with my cows I could go to war with, I could feed them more than other people. And I found out that when I hit 1.2% of body weight NDF, the cows pretty well stall. I can't seem to get them over that. Maybe it's a little bit over, but so I would look at the ration and, and look at it from a cowboy's perspective, like I have, and then Use uh, whether I chose to give them part of that regrowth uh, on uh, one bout of feeding, so everybody got a good crack at it because the subdominance and dominance within herds is still very present even in cow herds. So I kind of like to give them the same kind for a short period of time and everybody get a crack at it. and then I'll pull them out and leave whatever's there by dropping the fence. And then they go on to that hailed out barley or they go on to the straw. And I did have to trim some feet this spring. I'm not proud of it. I said I used the packing and abattoirs to do it. But we had had 2,000-pound bales with almost 900 pounds of barley in them. So that was pretty hot feed to pull cows back and forth from. The young cows didn't do well on that. The first calvers, the last minute, I had to pull them out of there and put them in with the calves. So Ryan, I made a mistake with them and I should have dealt with it sooner. But I find that older cows are more forgiving. And I did. Like I said, I had three cows out of 40 I had to trim some feet on. Uh, or maybe it was four, I guess. But the they'll do some amazing things. Because flipping them on to that, those barley bales that weighed over 2,000 pounds and there was over 900 pounds of barley, 45 bushels, I felt. Um, they still did okay on it. We didn't we didn't start them on it right away. We were kind of careful because we just didn't throw them at it. But um, so far I didn't kill any and I made it through the winter. I had to trim a few feet on one of my old 14-year-old cows that you don't expect to do a thing with but um i kind of thought yeah it's the grain overload um, from my erratic ration but i i'm talking too much steve you go for it
0: oh that's okay i quite enjoy that you said something about older females are more forgiving is that true <laughs> 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 sorry sorry I'm gonna I'm gonna be in trouble for that one, but you have a
1: few years till you find out, Steve.
0: Okay, yeah. (laughs) Okay, dear. Yeah. So my quick answer to that one is uh, I put the lower quality feed out to bale graze, and then I supplement with the higher quality feed. Okay, so whatever combination that might be, Uh, one example is we were swath grazing one year on pea straw. But obviously the pea straw wasn't good enough quality we actually had cow calf pairs out there so what i did i think i had a five-day move you know it was it was pea straw they didn't really you know they didn't love it uh, they'd eat it but they wouldn't but i needed to supplement the protein so i think the calves had a creep area where they always had a good quality hay bale in it we went out on so we moved the fence on day one day three we went out with some pellets And I have a pellet unroller, so I can easily uh, spread that out. You got to make sure you spread it out really good so that everybody gets some. Um, And my key to that is you drive away from the herd, turn around, and then unroll coming back into them. That way, all the the boss cows, the pigs that followed you out there quick, they get the first piles. And then at the end of the when the uh, rollers still dumping out smaller piles, well then those those slower cows, the older cows or the poor doers, they were standing at a small pile of grain all by themselves or pellets all by themselves. So, so day one move into a new paddock. Day three we gave pellets. Day five we gave pellets and unrolled a hay bale. Okay, so that kind of balanced out, and that last day they really cleaned up the last little bit of piece draw, and then on you know day six you move you know you started all over again. So again, trying to use that bypass protein idea, give them a, a couple of days with with nothing, and, or one or two days with nothing, and then give them protein, and then a couple of days, and then protein again. So it's a way to clean up. So if I was bale grazing, same thing, I'd put out my lowest quality feed out in the field. Um, the other bonus to that is the the wildlife don't like the low quality stuff. Right, If you put real high quality <laughs> alfalfa out there, the wildlife like to beat it up. Um, my goal with bale grazing is to put out lower quality feed in the field than my neighbor has in his hay yard. Um, just, I mean, I'm mean, i not very neighborly tonight, am I? That's twice I've teased my neighbor. You're just really
1: um, trying to put yourself back into that <laughs> hole with those roots, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, then you can take out, you know, uh, one year I had some low quality hay, but then I had some really high quality green feed. Right. So I would, you know, they were bale grazing on hay and I'd go out there with a bale of green feed and unroll it. And they'd all come over and, and they'd love that extra little bit of protein. It was some more mature. So it did have some grain, like quite a bit of grain in it. Um, so that was my protein supplement. It also worked really well if they ever got through the fence, which they did once in a while, because they're so used to coming to that truck because that's the special one. Right. They got they got in the whole field full of bales, my my hired hand didn't quite set up the fence right or whatever happened. He was in a panic because all the cows are out there. And I just went out there with the trip bale truck and the the green feed and every one of them come running out of there and followed the truck to that green feed bale. So it's also that little bit of supplement not only, you know, it's a little bit more labor and equipment cost, like I just said, you got to be careful of, but boy, it makes sometimes it makes it so much easier when you have those cows well trained. So uh yeah I guess that's my
3: no I appreciate it. Thanks guys
1: so with that being said we do have after networking networking so we're going to be after my announcement here we're going to turn off the recording and everyone can hang out open their cameras and mics and let it be just just a nice old chat that being said so in two weeks the next session that we have coming up we have greg judy coming on so that should be a lot of fun um and then berg so battle river research group Gateway Research Organization and Greener Pastors Ranching are going to be bringing you guys for a Christmas present, Temple Grandin on December 22nd. And she hasn't spoken out here in a long time. So we're really excited and thought we'd kind of announce that here. So, yeah, Temple Grandin, December 22nd.
0: I could tell Amber was really excited about that because she didn't really let us get the clothes out first.
1: Nope, nope, (laughs) not
3: allowed to.
0: (laughs) All right. No, it's uh, exciting. We're going to have a, we're going to try and get a bunch of uh, um, you know, uh, high quality speakers. We got the first one here, very high quality speaker. Um, and we're going to try and uh, keep up to our uh, reputation of last winter. We had some really good stuff going last winter. So um, yeah. Um, Greg Judy will be next week and then Temple Grandman's coming up too. So that's Two weeks. great. Two weeks. So we got oh, one nice. more in between. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Grant. Um, we'll officially close this out now. I really appreciate you being here. Um, it's great to have you on here. Like I said, you've been a mentor of mine for a long, long time. When I was uh, uh, pretty green and didn't have any gray in my whiskers, uh, I you know I was listening to Grant lots back then. So uh, much appreciate you being here. Do you have any closing words or anything words of encouragement to end it off with?
2: Um, I jokingly tell people, do as I say, not as I do. The, the fact is, we all learn. And I think it was said tonight well. We all learn from making mistakes. Even me this spring, all of a sudden, I was out there pulling my first calf heifers out of the skinny group, I called them, and putting them in with the calves for two weeks. And we did lose a couple of calves, but I got around that pretty quick. So it's. Uh, very simply, know that all of us make mistakes and we're all learning together. And the fact that Steve maybe is younger than me, but he's been a mentor to me too. And uh, I feel very fortunate to work with Amber on teams. So take advantage of the friendships you have because they're certainly part of this grazing fraternity and the networking around. Um, and when you run into a difficulty, give a friend a call. And I, ULA was on this, and the whole grazing mentor program, which by the way, Steve is working on for Canada uh, in the background, but um, was started based on ULA, who's on this call. Being the person I would call on the way to work. So, talk about knowing where I need advice. I went to a master grazer lady who I have the tremendous respect for. And uh, Ula would give me advice at seven o'clock in the morning on the way to work. So, <laughs> and she never uh, didn't answer the phone. So, anyway, I don't think, know if she'll do it now, but the great whole grazing mentor program. In my mind, came about because of the amazing sharing that occurred from people like Ula.
0: Awesome, thanks, Grant. Appreciate it. All right, we will officially start the after networking network.